two, one, and we are off with our series of response videos to The Reckoning. We've just watched The Reckoning episode one. Dr. Shahom Das is with us. He's got some insights. It was absolutely harrowing, but I've got some questions for him as well, especially to do with the relationship with his mother. Let us know in the chat. Put one in the chat if you've watched The Reckoning today, episode one at least. Put two in the chat if you have not yet watched it so we can gauge what's going on here. And huge thank you to Dr. Das. All of his links for his channel and his socials are in the description box below this video. So please support his work. Looks like we've got some ones coming in already. Andrea, unless there's a two. Two, one, two. Looks like pour a one in the chat. Yeah, so uh, thank you for joining us again. And... What was your initial reaction then after just coming off watching the first episode? Yeah, thanks for having me, Sean. I'm Sean. It's always a pleasure. So um, I'm just saying to you before we started recording, I've literally just just finished watching it. Like uh, it's in the last five minutes, I've just finished it. So I think it, it's got strengths and weaknesses, like any TV program. I think the strengths were that it's it does his character, Jimmy Savile's character, really well. So he is creepy most of the time. He's confident. He's quite entitled, especially when it comes to young women. Uh, he can be cheeky and charming when he wants to be, so he can charm the right people when he wants to. So I think they did all that quite well. I suppose it was a bit kind of... I, I don't really understand the point of it yet, right? So I've only seen one episode, and there are another three yet, so we have to give it an opportunity. But so the first episode just felt quite repetitive. It felt like him being in a situation where he could uh, be sexually predatory towards a young woman and taking that opportunity... There's not really anything that I've yet seen about exploring the darker side of everything that's going on in the background. There was a little bit towards the end when some of his behaviour was being excused. And if, if you don't mind, I, I really wanted to highlight one scene, which I think is like really, really telling. Is that okay? Yes, please. So so um, there's a scene quite near the end where he's in hospital and he's flirting with these nurses and, and he's kind of like kissing one of them up the arm. And then like seconds later, he goes over to the other side of the ward and there's a young vulnerable girl on her own. And he basically makes her put her hand in his trousers on the pretense of finding a juggling ball. Obviously he's actually, uh, you know, abusing her. Um, and what I think is really telling about that is she gets really upset. She runs away and then the nurse kind of takes Jimmy's side and says, you know, it's just Jimmy being Jimmy. He's just fooling around. And she, she kind of blames the patient on being over dramatic. And I think that's that's really well done because that's exactly what Jimmy Savile did. So another way of saying that is if he'd just gone over to that bed and if he'd just done that one thing with that one girl, then it would have got everyone's attention. The nurse would have thought that was weird. Everybody would have, you know, reacted badly rather than just some people. But because he hid his behaviour with this semi-charm, some people call it charm, find it charming. Some people probably thought it was a bit creepy. Some people thought it was weird. Some people thought it was funny. Some people thought it was sleazy. But this is weird kind of sexualised behaviour. Because he did that, he can hide in plain sight. So that nurse thought, well, he was just flirting with me. So I'm sure he just means the same towards this kid. She's misunderstood it. And that, I think, is the is probably the most important scene in the first episode so far. So does that foresight and cunning show that he's quite intelligent when he plans these things? It's not just spur-of-the-moment acts. He's actually laying the foundation to hide what he's doing. He's kind of weaving it in to this tapestry of his jokey behavior yeah so i think both in real life and also in this in this dramatized in this dramatization he is both 
impulsive and opportunistic and planned at the same time. So you can actually be a bit of both, can't you? So you can, you know, him setting himself up in this situation where he knows there's going to be young women dancing at his gigs, for example, and then towards the end of the of the first episode, Top of the Pops, clearly he's doing that for fame and, and because he, you know, he likes attention. But I think he's also doing that because he knows that it just sets him up with potential victims. And then once he's there, he sees victims and he takes the advantage of them. So I think it's both pre-planned and opportunistic. So if you've got any questions about this, the reckoning for Dr. Das, put them in. We've got him for 30 minutes. So get your questions in the chat, please, and we'll get them to him. So my question, Shaham, is as you're watching it, are you formulating character traits? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've already kind of extensively studied the real Jimmy Savile just because it's such a fascinating case. I've done videos on my YouTube channel, so I already have in my mind what I know his personality traits are, which are some things I've already mentioned. So as well as being creepy, he's also quite charming, clearly lacks empathy. I think he's quite emotionally intelligent, so he's able to manipulate people quite cleverly. So the very fact that he's friends with uh, everything from royalty to you know the BBC, uh, to the police, uh, to, to the hospital managers, it means that he must be charming to some people. Some people, you know, people must like him. He must be must have an attraction to his personality or a magnetism, I guess, even within the weirdness. So I know all those things about him. So I, when I'm watching it, absolutely, I'm I'm looking to see whether that is portrayed well. And I think it is portrayed well. I think Steve Coogan is doing a very good job of making him believable, but creepy, but also able to be charming at times. Yeah, but so I, it's hard. It's hard not to imagine him as Alan Partridge there. That's one thing I would say. <laughs> So Ray J's asked a question. This was the first question I was going to put to you, Shaham. And that is, they're, they're really emphasizing his relationship with his mother, how cold she is towards him. You know, she goes off to the confessional and says to the priest, I don't love my son. I had enough kids. I didn't really want him. And the priest says, well, you know, you, you, that's not a sin. It's, it's okay. You, you'll find the love for him kind of thing, giving her encouragement. It, it, and, and then they juxtapose, you know, him like waving to his mom. He's just had a jog, but while he's been out for a jog, he's also done this horrible thing to this young woman. Um, yeah. What do you make of his relationship with his mother, and how would that affect his behaviour? Yeah, that's a great question. So I was, I was looking up out of that. I'm going to look at some of my notes. Um, so. I mean, his mother is, is is openly quite horrible to him, mostly, isn't she? So at one point she says that he'll never be on the BBC, that he, he should be doing something more worthwhile with his life and his career. And then, as you said, she said at confession that she doesn't love a son. And I think she even said, if I remember this correctly, that that explains why he's always looking for attention. I'm not sure how I feel about this, to be honest, Sean, because firstly, how do we know that that actual conversation ever happened? So it feels like a kind of, and I, I get it, it's a drama, so you have to you have to kind of cover different sides, but it feels a bit convenient. It feels like the TV writers are trying to explain his predatory behaviour, potentially to make it more understandable, even more palatable for the viewers. Is that something we really want to be doing? I mean, another way of saying that is that there are lots of people, men, women, who have had um, horrible parents or cold mothers but the vast, vast majority of them don't become massive um, P word, I don't want to say the word, uh, abusers. So is it all a bit too convenient for the for the viewer? So I have kind of mixed feelings about this. But regardless of whether she actually said that or not, 
I think one thing that we can say is that there seems to be a disconnect between the way that she thinks about him and what he thinks about her. So elsewhere in that same episode, when he's being spoken to by the reporter and the reporter mentions that the Duchess, his mother, is dead, he says something along the lines of, you know, she's not dead to me. I get all the love I need from her. In fact, yeah, he's asking why she never, he's asking Jimmy Savile why he never got married. And he says something like, I've, I've always got, I've got all the love I need from the Duchess. She's my best friend. She was my guide. She's still alive to me. So there's something odd about her openly and to the priest being a bit denigrating towards him, but him idolizing her. Um, and I suppose that would that could explain why somebody might have an inferiority complex. It could explain possibly why they might have a poor image of women in general. And it, it definitely would explain why they'd have a need for attention, but it absolutely does not explain why he became such a prolific offender. And it doesn't explain why he kept her alive, kind of. Her clothes were dry cleaned and pressed long after she'd gone. It was like a shrine thing he had to her all right so i'll take this question i don't know if you've got any thoughts on it but i'll, I'll go over straight to the next one if you've not why have they decided one to make this and to release it now of all the russell brand stuff going on so casabur this has been in the making for years my dad is actually in episode three and he's going to be joining us on the reaction video to episode three and it was actually announced that it was going to come out next year so I've been, you know, writing my Savile book, hoping it would come out next year, but I'm only at 60,000 words, so they've, they've beat me to it. Um, so, you know, with all the Russell Brand stuff going on, I think what happened was it was postponed and postponed because they changed it because they wanted it to emphasise more the survivors versus a possible glamorization of Savile. That's my understanding. And you see that at the very end, those young women, those girls, those teenagers... They actually show them at the very end of episode one, they show the real video of them now, which really makes it much more powerful and does put more, far more emphasis on the survivors than, you know, trying to glamorize this guy, so this sicko. So I think it's good that they did take the time to shift that focus over to the survivors. Um, do you have anything to add to that or should I go to the next question? Uh, yeah, I do actually. So, um, firstly, from the original question, why did they decide to make it? I think there is two ways to look at it. One way could be that because obviously what Jimmy Savile did was so absolutely horrific and, and damaging that we should not give him more attention by making any kind of programs about him. That's what that's one perspective. Uh, and another perspective is that it, because it was such a big deal, it would be I don't know if entertaining is the right word, but certainly. For, for interesting fascinating but yeah actually to be fair entertaining for the average for, for some people to watch it i think there's two ends of the spectrum i I'm, i think i'm somewhere in the middle i think i'm probably more towards understanding why they made it than why they didn't but i can see the perspective of why some people would say you know you're making money and you're getting views from something horrible that's happened and the other thing i want to say sean is, is i personally have mixed feelings about the using the victims at the end to be 100% clear, not, I absolutely get the point of, of making it victim-centric rather than being about him. I completely get that. But I'm not sure if it felt a bit too forced, only because the whole thing is a drama with, you know, somebody that's, that's playing, an actor playing Jimmy Savile. And then at the end, it just looks different to have these people in. And it, it, to me, it feels, and I don't think it was, but it feels like a slightly sloppy attempt that the producers have just thought, actually, this is a bit too much about him. Let's just add in some scenes at the end. It just feel, felt a bit disconnected to me. That's what I thought. Yeah, it reminded me, there's this series about a drug in America on Netflix, this big, powerful pharmaceutical company. 
and a lot of people ended up dying when it, it got through the FDA. And at the end of each episode of that, they have a mum and she talks about her kid and how the kid died. But I thought that was a lot more powerful than the way they presented it in The Reckoning using the similar format. And Kazaber is asking, you know, why are they releasing this now, all the Russell Brand? I, I just think it, it, it's coincidence, uh, Kaza, that they brought it forward, they made the amendments, they brought it forward and they got it out because it, it has been delayed and delayed and delayed. So let's go over to the next one then. And I think Mr. Balding is referring to when, and we've not seen this yet because we're only on episode one, but people can watch the whole thing on iPlay already, but I've only watched one. So we're going to cover each night, we're going to cover a, di- a different episode. I think they're referring to, and I don't know how it's going to be portrayed, when Jimmy Savile was brought in as a marriage guidance counsellor for Princess Diana and Charles. So the question is, what skills does one need to possess in order to be experienced in marriage guidance? Uh, Right, I have to say, I I, I didn't know that he was a marriage guidance counsellor for for Charles and Diana. I knew that he was sort of close to them and friends to them. I know he'd speak to them regularly, but I didn't know his marriage guidance counselor i would say that he absolutely does not have the requisite skills because they need to you know he doesn't he's not had any long-term relationships that we know of he's completely misogynistic he sees women clearly as um, just objects for his sexual desire so he's literally the opposite of what a good marriage guidance counselor is but i suppose it'd be somebody that's got you know some psychological training understands the basics of therapy and development and attachment uh, good communicator and has empathy those would be the uh, the good the normal features so, Easy E, thanks for the super chat. In episode three, Thatcher is at Checkers with Jimmy and mentions past poor PMs. She then says Ted Heath capitulated with the miners' miners. Hmm. I think uh, Easy E is seeing a double entendre there. I, I haven't seen that episode, I'm afraid. I've only seen episode one. All right. Do you think then, Sean, that Savile was subject to the same behaviors he subjected others to yeah i'm going to ask you that question first i know you've you've researched him more thoroughly than i have and then i'll tell you my two cents so joe as far as i'm aware he got very ill when he was a baby and they thought he was going to die he was the seventh kid in the family he was born on halloween and they did all kinds of treatments for him and prayed they were religious and when he did survive it, it was like a miracle. So they called him the miracle child. So he went through that. Now, how much trauma that could have caused him? You know, we, childhood trauma is the root cause of a lot of ills. Um, I don't know. As to whether he was subject to full-on SA, um, I don't know that, about any history of that. Do you know about any history of that? Uh, not to my knowledge, no. I mean, I suppose the thing about SA and the reason that you know we know that people that there's an increased incident of people that have ex- that have experienced that in their childhood that go on to become offenders. That's a well-known fact, but we don't know the statistics simply because not all of it is uh, admitted by perpetrators or by victims. I, sp- I, mean, I suppose it's possible. I I think we'd just be speculating. I, I mean, I don't think I think there's lots of factors that make Jimmy Savile who he is. I talked about some of them last time um, I spoke to you last week, but just very briefly, as well as what you just said about this being this miracle child, there's a relationship with his mother. There's the fact that he's able to hide in plain sight. There's the fact that he was a celebrity and almost untouchable. There's the fact that he had so many powerful friends. 
I think even the charity in itself was a very clever, if that's the right word, smokescreen for him because it meant that he could travel from place to place like hospitals, TV shows, charity events, marathons, uh, under the guise of doing charity work, be exposed to fresh victims and then literally move on the next day with legitimate reason. So he had a very nomadic lifestyle. So I think it's all of these things in com- in combination as well as just his natural sort of hypersexuality and misogyny all of those things in combination so it's very possible that he was a victim of SA but I guess my point is, is that there's so many other factors that he doesn't have to have had that happen to him to explain why he was how he was before I go to the next question what what do you take of his weird fascination with death with sick people with people in hospitals which started quite young didn't it yeah i mean it a stretch you could say that because there are some people who have um you know paraphilias which is a very weird sexual kind of preference right and we know that jimmy savile or at least i don't know i don't know if we say we know but he's been suspected of the n-word you know having sexual relationships with with them um, with their people um but if it was only that if that was his only kind of um modus operandi if that was the only abuse or the only very weird creepy sexual thing that he did then i would say there's probably some kind of emotional connection like he's had some kind of experience in the past where he um has been sexually aroused around the dead body and he's kind of locked onto that memory but the thing about jimmy savile is he had so many different victims different genders different ages even that i don't think it was all about sexual gratification i think it was about power more than it, more than it was about sex so for that reason, I don't think there's a specific connection with illness or death. I think it's just vulnerability and being exposed to victims in hospitals. We've got a comment from Pink Roses that I'll see if you can comment on. Uh, I thought it was quite chilling and creepy, but Steve made a good job also, especially the voice. Dr. Shaham Das has made a good video on Alex Belfield and described him to a T. Is that the case? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, the video was was uh, quite old, but I did do that. Yeah, yeah, Steve Coogan's a very good actor, isn't he? Like, absolutely. He, he, as I said before, you can't just overham the creepiness because he was charming. Like, I know that sounds like um, um, complimenting the guy, but he was that he wouldn't have been able to be as successful um, as an abuser and also as in the entertainment industry if he wasn't charming. And I think Steve Coogan can be has made has acted has played him well, so he's both creepy and charming at the same time. And he's got the voice down, the accent, hasn't he? Yeah, although, as I said before, he, sometimes I was hearing Alan Partridge when he was speaking. So Alex Belfield, wasn't he the last to interview Savile? Uh, I don't know. I actually don't know. I think so. I'm going to I'm gonna have to find that one. All right, so Claudia wants to know, Jean, whether you think that Savile had a narcissistic parent. Um... No. So a narcissistic person always wants to be the centre of attention, uh, always, so every, every drama is about them. They're really selfish. They don't care about other people. They don't show empathy towards other people at all. And they can't handle any kind of criticism and they have a really overinflated view of themselves. I'd say from what I know about Jimmy Savile's mother and Sean, you probably know more than me, but specifically how she was portrayed in that first episode. I don't think she was narcissistic. I think she was quite um, insulting and she was, there was kind of like this infantilized relationship with them, wasn't there? So I remember her saying something like, I can't die because if I died, who would look after you? So I think she saw him as a baby, even when he was, uh, you know, an adult, completely independent and was actually 
quite a famous and, and um, successful celebrity, she still looked at him like a child. So I do think she was over infantilizing. I do think there's something a bit warped and unhealthy about the boundaries between them, but I don't think that she was a narcissist. I'll take this next one. Yes, Theresa, the reckoning later episodes do talk about his friendship with Prince Charles. And Louise wants to know whether you think, Shaham, that Savile should have been a patient in Broadmoor. Now, for those of you that don't know, Dr. Das worked in Broadmoor. If you've watched the first podcast we've done with him, um, he talks about his experiences in Broadmoor. Extremely fascinating, and he talks about them on his channel as well. So check those out. Um, do you think he should have been in Broadmoor, not holding the keys to Broadmoor? <laughs> Actually, no. No, I don't think that he should have been in Broadmoor. I'll explain why. Because Broadmoor is for people... Well, so Broadmoor is a high-secure hospital, right? So it's for people with mental illnesses that have committed very, very high levels of um, of offending. Jimmy Savile, clearly there's something wrong with him and he clearly had a personality disorder, but I don't think he had a mental illness, at least not one that took away his criminal responsibility. And that's what you get in Broadmoor. You get people who are so unwell that they don't know what they're doing. So, for example, there was this guy very recently, I think it was this week in the news, um, or sorry, last week, called uh, Jawant Chael, who tried to who was trying to assassinate the Queen, and he got caught in Christmas 2021, I believe it was Christmas Day. He got caught trying to scale the uh, castle with a crossbow because he'd been he'd had these messages from artificial intelligence telling him to kill the Queen. So that is like barn door Broadmoor material. Somebody who's got a mental illness doesn't know what they're doing, is hearing voices, has paranoid delusions. Jimmy Savile wasn't that. He was in control of his actions. He knew exactly what he was doing. The fact that he was very good at hiding it so well uh, shows that he was very sort of calculated and predatory. So for those reasons, he deserves to be, he would have deserved to be in prison, in my view, not Broadmoor. But having worked in Broadmoor, are you surprised that he did get the keys? Yeah, absolutely. It's just it's the craziest thing to me. Like, so Broadmoor is like all high school hospitals has airport style security to get in. Um, like even regular members of staff have that level of security. You know, when I worked there, I'd have my fingerprint scanned, uh, scanned, and I'd have keys to get my keys, and then they were on my belt, same as every other member of staff. They're not allowed off your belt in case you know a patient can grab them and try and escape. Uh, there's like airlocks, so there's more than two or three doors in a row, so that patients can't sort of bolt in between. That's the kind of level of security. So to have somebody that's not even a clinician to just be given keys to get into them is just. It's just completely against the entire ethos of, of what Broadmoor should have been, so it doesn't make sense to me at all. I can't imagine Savile just waltzing in there like the clown he is and sitting down with the Yorkshire Ripper and having a chat and just just make his belief. It, it does. It's like um, who's who's the entertainment equivalent, like Graham Norton being given keys to the most dangerous prison and just being told that he could just go into prison whenever he wanted <laughs> to. It just it doesn't make sense. The young lad with him calls him father. Was he based on an actual person? Was he put in there for dramatic effect? You know what, Rick? I'm not sure the, about the answers to that. I'll research that for a further ep, um, response video. All right. Does the dramatization downgrade the true horrors, thus distancing the BBC from the reality? What do you think about that? That's a very good question. Um, I suppose I can't really answer that until we've see, I've seen more of the episodes. Because as your viewers have seen it would have known, he only just got the job at the pop, at top of the pops at the very end of the first episode. So I hope that there is a bit of acceptance and insight from the program makers, and I hope that they show that, amongst other people, the top brass at the BBC were partially responsible for allowing Savile to get away with it. But if they don't, then I think they're going to be highly criticised for it. 
one from Seago. Do you think Savile would have been able to be so prolific in his abhorrent behaviours today? I know he was highly connected and covered for, but has the internet made someone like Savile obsolete? That is a very good question, actually. Uh, you go first, and I'll tell you my thoughts. Wow. So, all right. So, I interviewed John Wedger last night about Savile. It's two hours long, and we're hoping to get that one out in the next one to two weeks. And he gave some very original ideas about Savile, including that he believed that Savile had a quid pro quo with intelligence, whereby people such as high-up clergy members, uh, bishops, priests, celebs, politicians, were put in compromising situations through which uh, Savile had been the procurer of the young people who were on the receiving end of these monsters. So when I asked him if in this age of technology that could be replicated, he said it could be replicated in a different way because technology has advanced so much. These people, through the internet, have access to a lot more potential kids versus, you know, just being a man out on foot, uh, going to clubs, doing his DJing, whatever. Yeah, he's got access to a lot of people because of his celebrity status. But the internet, you know, from his bedroom, he could just be in there luring kids to come, you know, over to his house and stuff like that. So uh, Wedger felt that it could be done in a more sophisticated way, using modern technology, more sinister, evil way. Um, what do you think, Sean? So I would play devil's advocate to that, Sean. So I'd say, yeah, all of those things are correct. But also, you could argue that it's a lot. it would have been a lot easier for him to have been caught and found out and for people to make complaints. Because I think I think there were, there were lots of reasons, but the two main reasons that his victims didn't speak out, apart from you know the obvious things that all victims have, like embarrassment and shame, apart from those things, were that they didn't think that they would be believed and because he was uh, believed in general and also because he had connections within the police. So if there were complaints, they were probably brushed under the carpet. So I think you could say that if that was the case, then in, in this day and age, there's a lot more opportunities to, for people to go on the internet and tell their story. And if one person said something, then probably nothing would happen. They would just be kind of trolled and ignored, possibly even bullied. But if, you know, 5, 10, 15, and let's remember he had hundreds of victims, if dozens, hundreds of people came out, then I think there's a good chance it would have gained some sort of traction um, and he could have been exposed. So I think it's, it's very plausible. Yeah, that brings to mind the scene in the hospital that you talked about earlier. So, you know, he's acting up with the nurses and then he goes over to the poor girl on the bed. If she'd have just whipped out an iPhone and broadcast that to everyone she knows online and they would have then shared it because of his celebrity status there would have been a huge backlash against him right away and it would have been, it would have documented it on the spot because when he got called out by the hospital admin guy he just kind of like brushed over it to him didn't he yeah yeah absolutely i just while you were saying that i was thinking have there been cases recently like literally in the last say five years where there have been celebrities abusing people but it's not come out on the on social media i suppose there have been cases haven't there even brand was brand brand was i guess pre his abuse was pre kind of twitter and everything wasn't it um so yeah i mean i suppose there's the platforms are available for, for victims to make complaints against predators like jimmy savile but whether people would actually have done it or not it's hard to know really 
Will the BBC be seen? How will the BBC be seen at the end of this once it's known that the folk at the BBC knew what he was up to? It's a risk, isn't it, for them? Yeah, yeah. But then I suppose they know that the whole world knows that people in the BBC were involved and maybe their perspective is that it was, you know, the previous generation. It wasn't producers that were working there now. It was the top brass from whatever, 20 years ago. Uh, so they've got nothing to lose, I think. You know, if they if they are honest and show that the BBC is implicit, it's not revealing new information. It's not like a revelation. Everybody knows. You're being asked whether you suspect that Savile had relations of a carnal nature with his mum. <laughs> um, again, it's a lot of speculation. I mean, it's a very rare thing, isn't it? But then he was so kind of twisted and so hypersexualized and the way he spoke about her was so kind of creepy and inappropriate and with a lack of boundaries that it's certainly possible i can't say whether it happened or not but if it did happen then it that would be the kind of person that would do it kim jay wants to know whether he was a psychopath yeah absolutely so i think the word psychopath is often overused and used inappropriately for anybody who's just kind of violent or does something that other people can't understand but I think in this case, Jimmy Savile is a perfect example of a psychopath. So not only is he kind of impulsive and he can be aggressive, uh, but he's also charming when he wants to be. He's quite sort of grandiose and glib um, and he's very uh, manipulative. So even in that first episode, aside from using his platform to, to find vulnerable young women, aside from that, we actually saw when he's being interviewed for the Top of the Pops job, how he quite subtly kind of puts the other interviewers off potential candidates but he does it in, in quite a quite a cunning way he doesn't do it directly he does it indirectly and that's exactly what a psychopath would do oh he's an absolute gentleman but he's not very well connected with the kids and i was at lunch with the kinks last week <laughs> very down to earth fellas um cara uh, i'll refer that question to our series with john wedger he's done a podcast on dando and i think he covers that um, deep down, could Savile have actually hated his mother after her confession of not loving him? Could this be part of why he was doing the things he did, attention-seeking, or was it about love? So, first of all, we don't know whether that confession actually happened. And if it did happen, I don't... To my knowledge, it's not public knowledge. I don't know of any priest coming out and saying that. Do you, Sean? No. You know, a lot of these things are going to have to be fact-checked. There's going to have to be... Um, a, a list of things that have arisen in this dramatization that all of the Savile researchers are going to go and try and find out what the hell the truth is here. To be fair, it did say at the very beginning of the program that this is you know, based on his life events, but some scenes have been created for dramatic effect. Uh, so to answer the question, I think that we don't know if it happened. And if it did happen, I don't think Savile directly would have found out about it because there's no sort of realistic way why he would. But I do think that the relationship with his mother is, is very complicated. And we've already talked about this, haven't we? I think that she was quite insulting and, and hostile towards him. And he kind of held her in very high esteem and almost in a very infantilized, almost kind of sexualized. Well, not se I didn't know sexualized. It wasn't sexualized, but in a very like overbearing kind of way. Um, so there's something up there with the relationship, definitely. I've got to phrase this question carefully. Um, do you suspect that he had carnal relations with the deceased um so i suspect it absolutely because i think it, it, there were there have been sort of rumors and indications of that happening if i remember this correctly he certainly had access to their bodies which in itself is strange why would anyone even even think to want to have that 
Uh, I don't know whether it happened or not, but again, a bit like <laughs> a bit like the question with his mother. If it was going to happen, it wouldn't surprise me if it happened to somebody like him. We've got two hours of Savile content tonight, and I think Dr. Shaham, we're at 30 minutes. Have you got time for more? Have you got to get going? Uh, no, I've got time for a couple more questions. Um, I've got a couple of things I wanted to say, if that's all right. about Go for about it, yes. The, um, about the programme. So I, I wonder what you thought about the title, Sean, um, The Reckoning, because to me... It seems like the opposite of a reckoning because he never really got justice, did he? So I didn't. I don't know if that's being ironic or if I'm not getting it. What do you think? I think the BBC are reaching. There never was a reckoning, and the fact that there never was a reckoning, the BBC are culpable for to a large extent. Even as he was getting exposed, they didn't want their Christmas special being spoiled, and they tried to stop what was getting into motion. You know, thanks to people like Mark Williams Thomas, etc., um, pushing it, and the other chat, the other networks pushing it, it all did come out. So there absolutely wasn't a reckoning, and I think to use that title is a bit misleading. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And the, the other thing, that I, other point that I wanted to make, and again, we've only seen one out of four episodes, but from the episodes so far, one thing that it hasn't done or hasn't done yet is shown the kind of range of his victims, right? Because everybody has been a vulnerable young woman, whereas in reality, it was both genders and a whole range of ages. It was basically anybody that he had access to that was available and vulnerable. So I'll be looking out to see whether they, there is more diversity, is that, is that the right word, in his, in yep. his victim group, uh, whether it's more reflective of, of reality. He didn't discriminate at all. Um... Do you think he was capable of blackmailing high-profile people to be able to gain access to the places he accessed? I mean, capable, yes, 100%. He's definitely capable of it. Whether he actually did that or not, um, I don't think he had to. I mean, you, you said yourself, Sean, that there's that you spoke to John Wedger and he suggested that, that he was blackmailing people, but I don't think he had to to get into those places. I think he was such a big celebrity at the time. And he was so so well known for his charity work that they wanted him in those places. That's what I think. Again, I'm going to refer this one to the Wedger interview. He was investigated over the Sutcliffe murder. He has this weird relationship with Sutcliffe. And Sutcliffe, it was the corpse that was left right outside Jimmy Savile's flat as if he was honouring Jimmy Savile by leaving it there. And Savile was questioned pertaining to that um, person who'd been killed by the Ripper. I had no idea about that. Yeah, it's fascinating. And then later on, you, you know, he sat down in, in Broadmoor with Sutcliffe. So Nick wants to know, are the BBC being selective as to what they portray to us? So I suppose um, this is kind of this, similar to my previous answer. I think it's, it's too early to tell yet because he's only just started his TV career at the end of episode one. and That's the only one that both of us have seen. Uh, but I'm going to be looking out because that's something that I'm very curious about, whether they're going to try and whitewash their own involvement uh, or not. So that's I think that's an important point. So I think that we all, all of us have to look out for it. My dad stepped in answering a question here. He's got a lot of Savile knowledge. Um, Ray Tourette, Savile's assistant, was a real character and eventually died in prison, convicted of the R word. There you go. We've got one, one of those things fact-checked. Hello, Mr. Atwood Senior. Pleasure to make your acquaintance. Our Dericus. Um, do we, any any uh, idea of Savile in his adolescence? Uh, again, I think you know more than I, I do about the Sean. You're the, you've written a book about him or you're writing a book about him. What do you think? 
um, most notable thing is he was a Bevan boy. This was during World War Two, and when he was down the mines, he had an accident that injured his spine. But he behaved bizarrely, and and, and he, he used to you know do theatrical stuff when he was down there and come out not wearing the, the protective gear, and and um, that's all I know really. And then you know he he claimed to be the first to have turntables and and done all this, which I think is grandiosity because. Uh, there, there are people documented going back to the twenties with the turntables. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's definitely from what I do know about him, which is not a lot about his adolescence. I mean, it, he was definitely weird from a young age, wasn't it? It wasn't an act. He really was a strange, oh, yeah. sort of quirky, attention-seeking individual. Absolutely. Do you think that this program, the Reckoning, Doctor Das, will inspire other survivors to come forward? Um, I'm not sure. I think because. It was exposed, but how long? How long has it been now since it was all exposed? Has it been two, three years now? Um, so Operation U Tree was, I think it was a lot longer than that because look at all the legal proceedings that happened and Gary Glitter, Rolf Harris, all those people, Max Clifford, yeah. uh, got okay, reeled so. in, didn't they? Yeah, so several years. So I think probably the vast majority of people that are, are ever going to speak out about him probably already have. I'm not saying it's, it's impossible that one or two more might not come out, but I think that I think it's probably victims often come out when other victims speak up because they feel like they will be believed or because they've buried really painful, traumatic memories uh, that they're uncomfortable thinking about and it's all been resurfaced. So um, I think all of that probably would have happened for the majority of victims already. Joe's asking about his siblings again. One of his family members did get in trouble for similar offences. And what we're going to do is tomorrow before the episode at 7, we're doing a Who Was Jimmy Savile video that could go potentially from 7 to 9. And we are going to fill in all the family stuff in great detail tomorrow. We've also got another reaction video coming at 10 tomorrow. And we'll be able to get more concrete information. So Rosie, uh, what, 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 what did Savile do with his mother after she passed? He was alone with her for a week or so. He said he loved spending time with her. God, anything could have happened. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, there's something, something, I don't even know how to put this into words, just something, apart from saying creepy, there was something a bit, just a blurred boundaries about keeping her clothes and, and kind of speaking about her like she's still alive as well. Yeah. It's, it's un- so unusual, isn't it? All right, from Patrick, Sean, seeing Dr. Shaham on the Broadmoor documentary question, did Savile have free reign in his caravan? Did he not learn that from his father? It, it, it's like a mobile, um, I don't know, beep uh, vehicle, isn't it, that he's got there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did he did he bring victims into his caravan? Is that is that what happened? He certainly did. He, that's what he used it for. Yeah, and is, was the caravan near Broadmoor? Did I get that right? He used to stay there. He, well, he moved it around, didn't he? There. I think he just moved it around. Because, like he said, he was like a no, a nomad. Yeah. All right, let's see what else we've got here. Then. I'll, t- I'll take one more question, if that's all right, Sean. Yeah, that's fine. Let me have a look. We nearly got through all of them. I appreciate all the questions coming in. Um, let's see. While I find the next question, Dr. Dash, you want to tell the viewers where they can find you and support you? Uh, yeah. So I've got a YouTube channel called A Psych for Sore Minds where I assess individuals who have sort of high profile cases so that for example that guy Joanne Chael who I talked about who uh, has just recently been sentenced for 
trying to assassinate the queen that would be a perfect example of a case of somebody that's got men- some sort of mental disorder and i kind of explain the diagnoses etc cetera, etc cetera. so go find me on the site or mine all right let's leave it at that there are tons of questions but it's stuff pertaining to things we're going to research for tomorrow's show now please stay tuned we've got two hours of savile content this evening um dr das is gonna go i'm gonna stay on and take some more questions and give you some more information. So we are going to be seeing Dr. Das on episode four reaction response video, which is next Tuesday at 10 p.m. Huge thank you for spending time with us, and we will see you then. Take care, my friend. Absolute pleasure. Cheers, Sean. All the best. Bye. Thank you very much. Cheers. All right, there we go. So I'm going to pull up, I mean, there's just slews of news stories have popped up today and I think they're going to cover um, some of the information you guys are questioning. I know a lot of you are really interested in the relationship with King Charles. I am writing a book about Savile. Didn't get it out in time for the reckoning but there's going to be plenty in there about the royal family because the official version is that it was his charity work that led to the relationship with Charles. That's the mainstream narrative but if you look at the history of Lord Mountbatten and what Mountbatten was up to at the Kinkora boys home and what he was up to in Ireland and around the world and which was one of the reasons that led to his demise and if you've not seen our interviews with Richard Kerr about Kinkora horrific stuff John Wedge is working on some of that stuff now in honor of the boys who were taken and didn't even return um, so it looks like Mountbatten brought Savile in to the highest level of royal circles. The Mail has put an article up today saying that not only is Prince Charles one of the first names mentioned in the reckoning, but the screenplay features archive footage of Savile with Charles and Diana, who went so far as to view him as a confidant and advisor. And if you've read Princess Diana in her own words, she talks about Savile being brought in, in this marriage guidance capacity, and how creepy she found him. So with all these complaints coming in over the decades, I know this is something that David I has touched on us, on, on with us, on the interviews with us. Um, how can somebody who's had these complaints come in, even though they've been covered up. MI5, Royal Protection Police, what kind of background checks would they have done on Jimmy Savile to allow him to have access to the royal family at the absolute highest levels? And for a lot of Savile researchers, we are confounded that this was allowed when surely the background checks, MI5, they must have known what he was up to. How could they have not? These have got all the resources in the world paid for by the taxpayers to do background checks and be extremely careful who they allow around the highest level of the royal family. So the article today is saying um, the footage is juxtaposed of him with Charles with highly disturbing scenes 
from Savile's decades of beep and beep, leading viewers to one stark question above all. How could our king have allowed himself to be taken in by such a monster? Yep, there was an article that came out last week in the Mail that said that so close were Charles and Savile following Prince Harry's birth in 1984, he was included in a long list of potential godfathers. This selection had been written down by Charles and seen by his private secretary, Edward Adian. Edward then discussed it with Sir Alistair Erd, the Queen Mother's Comptroller, who assured Edward that the matter would be dealt with. Savile didn't make the final six, but the king's friendship with him continued. When Savile turned 80, Charles sent him Cuban cigars and gold cufflinks with the note, Nobody will ever know what you have done for this country, Jimmy. This is to go some way to thank you for that. Wow. Savile's rise to the position of friend to the royals was extraordinary even before things were revealed in the years following his death. Some of those who'd known him in the past were quite clear about what sort of man he was. As a dance hall boss in Leeds in the 1950s, he was regarded as a deeply sinister man with links to gangsters. Well, John Wedger said he was a straight-up gangster, Savile, in the interview we did last night. Speaking of that time, Savile boasted of using violence, saying, I was always in trouble with the law for being heavy-handed, but I couldn't care less. I never threw anyone out. I tied them up and put them down in the bloody boiler house until I was ready for them at about two o'clock in the effing morning. I was the judge, the jury, and the executioner. And remember, he touched on that in the Louis Thoreau documentary, 2002. He even intimated he had killed someone, saying, if he wants to die, he can die. He won't be the first that I've put away. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's like he knew he had so much power through, according to Wedger, having compromise on people, he could just admit to doing things knowing he was untouchable. And that's why I think our Savile documentary title, Untouchable, is far more appropriate than The Reckoning, because Untouchable versus Reckoning are two completely different worlds. He was never reckoned in his lifetime. So the BBC had, had definitely reached him. And we're going to have Savile content coming out every night this week. Uh, I think it's Thursday night. We are rebroadcasting the uh, on a premiere the almost four-hour program, the documentary that we made that took us years, um, Untouchable. So I hope to see some of you in the chat as well. All right, let me let me continue this then. Once Jimmy had become the face of BBC programs, including Top of the Pops, Clunk Click, and Jim Will Fix It, he deliberately insinuated insinuated himself into influential circles and manipulated the highest in the land to give himself protection. 
That's according to the journalist Marion Jones. What local police officer was going to bust a friend of the royal family and the prime minister on the word of a vulnerable 14-year-old girl who claimed to have been beeped by him? And as we saw in episode one of The Reckoning today, we saw the cops, you know, challenge him. I'll bring someone to him, rather. It was a young man that his his henchmen had beat up for trying to sneak in. And they'd, you know, severely injured this kid. And the kid is presented to him with the cop. And Savile just takes complete control of the conversation. And the cop's like, yeah, basically, we beat the living daylights out of them as well at the police station that's why it's called brutal something or other and there was a situation as well that i'm aware of in our research whereby savile had a girl in his rolls royce and the cop knocked on the window and savile said to the cop the cop's like what are you up to jimmy and he's like oh, i'm waiting for her to turn 16 she's going to turn 16 at midnight and he says to the cop why not you f off basically you mess with me and you, you'll be out of a job and the cop did leave and went back to the cop shop and explained to his colleagues what had happened and they said yeah you need to live leave that guy alone it's, it's more than your job's worth so imagine having that much power because of his connections with the top levels of the royals the top levels of politics thatcher Edwina Curry is unique that he managed to do that. Unique if you look at other perpetrators of these crimes. I think he got to the top of every echelon of society. I don't think I've, I've ever. I mean, Ep, the guy we can't talk about, um, he was reaching for those levels that Savile achieved. All right. So I was talking about Marion the journalist. She was the head of investigations at Newsnight in 2011, which was the year Savile died. And it was his expose of Savile's crimes, initially pulled by the program's editor, Peter Rippon, in December of that year, that would eventually blow the myth apart. But while Savile's desire for powerful allies is all too easy to comprehend, considerably less so is what the likes of Prince Charles got out of the association with him? Good question. So in the 2022 Netflix doc, Jimmy Savile, A British Horror Story, correspondence stretching back over two decades between Prince Charles and Savile revealed Prince Charles's hope that Savile could help him appear in touch with his young future subjects. Because as you saw in The Reckoning Today, it was all about these people wanted to tap into the youth anyone who was cool with the youth were on board so that they could get the views so in one letter from january 1987 king charles wrote perhaps i'm wrong but you are the bloke who knows what's going on what i really need is a list of suggestions from you i so want to get to parts of the country that others don't get to reach wow the documentary revealed that Savile even drafted an informal media relations handbook for Charles, some of which was incorporated into a memo seen by Queen Elizabeth and the Duke of Edinburgh. 
Now, so uh, at least the male is going out and saying about Mountbatten, which the mainstream media don't usually do. There is a claim that it was initially Lord Mountbatten, Charles's favourite uncle, who smoothed Savile's path into the royal circle. Could this association have been linked an account of the beep for young boys Mountbatten allegedly held, according to FBI files from the 1940s? And we've covered that whole story with Andrew Lowney a couple of years ago, but we were made to delete it from this platform. But I will re-upload that to locals and to Patreon if people want to check that out. Um, the South, uh, the Mountbatten stuff is, is really sickening. Savile's relationship with Stoke Mandeville Hospital, where he beeped a series of victims, including R-wording, an eight-year-old, disgusting, enabled him to get to know Prince Charles better, the relationship with Stoke Mandeville, because people said you know, he did all this fantastic work for charity, but he was picking and choosing the charities that would maximise his publicity. And by raising tens of millions, it created this shield. Vested interests then did not want to lose that money. He was a resource to them. When the Stoke Mindeville's 10 million National Spinal Injury Centre was opened in 1983 by Charles and Diana, they were lavish in their praise for the work Savile had done to raise the money required to build it. And then, like I touched on earlier, when Charles and Diana's marriage broke down, they both remained in touch with Savile. Royal Press advisor Dickie Arbiter later said Savile had even acted as a sort of marriage guidance counsellor. Savile was brought in by an aide as a sort of Jim will fix it to fix the state of the marriage, but of course it didn't work. Then when Prince Andrew was called on to help in an episode of Savile's most famous show, Jim will fix it, an eight-year-old girl asked to visit a warship. The naval officer Prince was her host on his mine hunter, HMS Cotsmore. Princess Anne was similarly obliging on another episode of Jim will fix it, while Prince Philip was lent on to help a fundraising drive for the National Spinal Injury Centre at Stoke Mandeville. Charles also asked Savile if he would meet with the Duchess of York to give her some straightforward common sense. After she was photographed having her feet kissed by her Texas lover, John Bryan. In one of the notorious Squidgygate tapes, the recordings of conversations between Diana and John Gilby from 1989, in which he called her the pet name Squidgy, Diana said, Jimmy Savile rang me up yesterday, and he said, I'm just ringing up my girl to tell you that his nibs, as in Charles, has asked me to come and help out the redhead, the Duchess of York, and I'm just letting you know so that you don't find out through her or him, and I hope it's all right by you. So he had it like that with the royal family members. Diana referred to Savile's relationship with Charles as sort of mentor 
in the conversations. In a letter written the following year, Charles told Savile he was, quote, so good at understanding what makes people operate and you're wonderfully sceptical and practical. But Charles wasn't alone in his admiration. His own father, Prince Philip, had been something of an admirer and it is only fair to say that Savile managed to work his malevolent trick on much of the arts and television establishment and, of course, the viewers. Yet, according to Marion Jones, the rumours about Savile's activities with underage girls were rife from 1990. So how could Charles be, you know, sending him things when he's in his 80s? It beggars belief. Um, after journalist Lynn Barber put them to print for the first time from 1990, uh, Jones said, quote, Today I find it very difficult to believe that Charles's PR and media advisors would not have been asking the same questions about whether it was wise for Savile to remain as Charles's mentor. Perhaps they were the same PR and media advisors that approved Prince Andrew to be interviewed by Emily Maitlis. Um, when Savile died in 2011, Charles paid tribute, saying he was saddened to hear of Jimmy Savile's death and what he thinks of Savile today or his strikingly misplaced friendship is unknown. But this program is definitely going to raise some questions. Now, many of you have seen the content that we've done with Christopher Berry D. Christopher Berry D is the biggest selling true crime author in the world. Christopher Berry D introduced me to his friend Boris. Um, Boris was an, is an expert on Broadmoor and he wrote a book about Broadmoor and he wrote about Savile and he wrote about Savile's proclivity for the deceased. Now, many of you have been asking in the chat whether you, what, you're wondering whether that Savile did have relations with the deceased and in one minute's time, 11 o'clock UK, we're going to go over to a premiere of the full interview with Boris, unreleased, and also with Christopher Berry D comes into it um, in the latter part of it. We're going to go over to their perspectives on Savile and Boris really says some horrific things that he believes that Savile got up to. Um, before we go click over to that, though, um, Amy's asking, was it worth a watch? Indeed, you can watch the whole thing on iPlayer or you can watch The Reckoning episode by episode. So tomorrow night, we're going to be back at 10, responding to episode 2. Next week, we're going to be back Monday and Tuesday, responding to episodes 3 and 4. My dad is in episode 3. Uh, he's agreed to join us. He's, he's He played a role in it as an actor. And he's going to be answering your questions. And um, we're going to have Dr. Das back on episode four. Tomorrow night, response video. We're going to have Ron Swanson. And then on Monday night, we're going to have Ron Swanson. So Dr. Das's links are down in the description, as is some of our other Savile coverage. And we're going to be having Savile content out, live streams mostly every night. My next live stream, I'm back tomorrow 
at seven o'clock deep dive who was jimmy savile all right this video now should forward to savile 